In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and the hour of death, amen. Most sacred heart of Jesus, pray for us. Immaculate heart of Mary, pray for us. St. Pius X, pray for us. St. Pius V, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. I wanted to begin tonight's conference by reading you a rather lengthy description on the opening ceremonies of Vatican II that is going to set the tone, as it were, for this series of conferences The previous series of conferences I addressed were on modernism. What modernism is, I gave you a history of modernism. Up to Vatican II, I gave you some of the chief names of modernist theologians and those who opposed them. And the history involved in that was from Pope St. Pius X to Pius XII. Now I want to begin a series of conferences on Vatican II. So let me uh, read uh, this to you, Uh, and I've got some very lovely pictures here, (laughs) Uh, opening here St. Peter's Basilica with a procession of the bishops on October the 11th in 1962. Just listen to these words. The long white procession of bishops in mitres and flowing copes seemed never to end. It came down the royal staircase, through the bronze door, and halfway across the square. Then it turned abruptly to the right mounted the steps and disappeared through the main entrance of St. Peter's Basilica. It was Thursday, October the 11th, 1962, the Feast of the Divine Maternity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, and the opening day of the Second Vatican Council. The cobblestones underfoot were wet and shiny from the rain that had fallen all night long, but they quickly dried in the bright morning sun. I stood on the front steps watching all 2,400 bishops pass by. These men, for the most part, were unknown outside their diocese. But some of them, because of what they would say or do, were destined to live forever in the histories of the council. Names like Fring or Ottaviani, or Leonard, or Cardinal Meyer, or Cardinal Bale, or Cardinal Sunnis, were just a few of the many that would never be forgotten. 
Then he goes on to say this. Not all the bishops were smiling as they passed by. For many among them believed that the council had been convoked simply to rubber stamp previously prepared documents. Some United States bishops had intimated that they would put in a token appearance for two or three weeks, but then they were going home. Pope John finally appeared at the end of the procession, his face radiant with joy. Repeatedly, he bowed to the crowd, giving his blessing and gladly accepting their greeting in return. For so to speak, this council was his creation. The 21st ecumenical council in the history of the Catholic Church. And the second to be held at the Vatican. He had been Pope for scarcely three months when he told 17 astonished cardinals of his intention to call an ecumenical council on January the 25th, 1959, in the Benedictine monastery adjoining the Basilica of St. Paul's outside the walls. At the main entrance to St. Peter's, his portable throne was lowered, and he proceeded down the long aisle on foot. The council fathers, now in their places in the huge council hall, applauded and cheered him as he passed by. They represented every part of the world. When Pope John reached the altar at the front of the hall, he knelt down to pray. Then followed the first official prayer of the Second Vatican Council, the Veni Creator Spiritus, in which the Pope and the 2,400 council fathers together called upon the Holy Ghost for light and guidance for the great task ahead. Mass was then celebrated, after which the book of the Gospels was solemnly enthroned upon the altar, a custom dating back to the earliest of councils. Finally, Pope John made his opening address. He was confident, he said, that the church would draw a new energy and a new strength from this council and would look to the future without fear. These words that I've just read to you were written by Father Ralph M. Wilkin was a divine word missionary priest 
who resided in Rome and who wrote a book called The Rhine Flows Into the Tiber. It is a book I believe some of you are familiar with. You may have at least seen it or passed by it in our bookstore in St. Pius V Chapel. Is Mr. Flynn here? <laughs> Do we have that book down there? Right. I remember as a young man seeing the book and a list of books by, remember Tan Books and Publishers? I always thought it was a very conservative, anti-Vatican II book. But it's not. Father Wilkin wrote this book, The Rhine Flows Into the Tiber. He wrote it to present the history of Vatican II to priests and lay people, so that, as he himself wrote in the preface, and I quote, the Second Vatican Council may come alive for you, unquote. That is, it may come alive for the reader. So the book was not meant in any way to be a sharp criticism of the Second Vatican Council or a defender of true Catholic teaching. The book was written to tell the story of Vatican II, characterized, as I have read through the book, characterized by a favorable slant and blessing for Vatican II and its glorious work. Before we delve into the Second Vatican Council, and in particular, before I take apart John the 23rd's opening speech and go through that with you, and then the 16 documents of Vatican II that I have prepared a short commentary on each one to explain to you what each document said, what it changed, what the church had always taught. Before we get into that, and we're not going to get into any of that tonight, by the way. This is as long as the Modernism Conference. This one's going to go a few months, too. Right? Would you expect less? <laughs> Before we get into all that, though, we have to first set the groundwork by looking at the person of John the Twenty-Third, whose name was Angelo Roncalli. We have to look at John the 23rd, and we have to look at what preceded the council after his election, how he came about to call Vatican II. Just as our conference on modernism and its history gave you a remote preparation for Vatican II, now we're going to look at, if you will, the proximate preparation for Vatican II. And in doing so, we're first going to answer the question, who was Angelo Roncalli? To answer that question of who he was, I'm first going to give you the official biographical sketch 
of John the 23rd, as is recorded on the official website of the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops. I want to give you, in other words, what the new church has to say about him. And then I'm going to tell you everything they left out that is of the utmost importance. What they don't tell you. John the 23rd was born Angelo Giuseppe Roncalli in a small Italian town, Soto il Monte. I think that's how our Italians would say it. Soto il Monte on November the 25th, 1881. Soto il Monte is located near Bergamo, an Italian metropolis in the north of Italy. He was the fourth of 13 children. His parents were Giovanni Battista Rancali and his mother Mariana Giulia Mazzola. In 1892, he entered the seminary at Bergamo. He remained there till 1901 when he went to Rome to further his studies. It was at this time he took a year off of seminary training for military service. But in 1902, he returned to the Pontifical Roman Seminary where he completed his studies for the priesthood. He was ordained a priest on August the 10th in the year 1904. Note that is during the reign of Pope St. Pius X. And almost immediately he was called upon to serve as the personal secretary to the Bishop of Bergamo, Giacomo Radini Tedeschi, who is pictured here, Bishop Tedeschi. He served as the bishop's personal secretary until the bishop's death on August 22, 1914. He died two days after St. Pius X. In 1915, young Father Roncalli was drafted into the Italian army. He was a chaplain and a medic. And thus he served during World War I as a chaplain for the Italian army. In 1921, and remember this is all from the official history. In 1921, he was called to Rome and named the head of the Society of the Propagation of the Faith by Pope Benedict XV. In 1925, Pope Pius XI appointed him apostolic visitor to Bulgaria. He was then consecrated a bishop in the church of San Carlo alla Corso in Rome. And after his consecration, he set off for Bulgaria. 
There in Bulgaria, he worked very closely with the Eastern Rite Catholics. In 1934, he was sent to the city of Istanbul to serve as the apostolic delegate to Turkey and Greece. During the Second World War, as the history given to us by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops officially tells us, during World War II, he is credited as being the churchman among all other bishops and priests who did more to help the Jews escape the Nazi persecution than including Pope Pius XII. Now remember, that's what they say. That's what they say. In 1944, Pope Pius XII named him Papal Nuncio to Paris. And I know all our mouths are about to drop, right? Pius XII, 1944, made him Papal Nuncio to Paris. Maybe he thought he'd be captured by the Nazis who were occupying France at the time. Just kidding. 1953, he was created Cardinal by Pius XII. And he was named the Archbishop of the Ancient See of Venice, which was the patriarchal see that Cardinal Joseph Sarto held before he was elected Pope Pius X. He was called to Rome in 1958 to partake in the papal conclave in which he would be elected. That's the official history of John XXIII, which they, of course, say of St. John XXIII on the official website for the United States Catholic Conference of Bishops. Now, let me tell you the facts that they didn't tell. As a young priest, Ron Colley, we said, was the secretary to Bishop Radini Tedeschi, the Bishop of Bergamo. It is a fact that Bishop Tedeschi held Pope St. Pius X in disdain. He despised him. Ron Colley was appointed by this bishop who was his mentor to be the spiritual director of the seminarians at Bergamo. Do you understand what's happening here? His mentor despises Pope St. Pius X. It is also a fact that young Father Roncalli had an open admiration for the Italian modernist, Father Ernesto Bonauti, I think that's how you say it. I mentioned this man before to you. He is the one who wrote the work Il Programma 
Dei Modernisti. That is, that Italian work on modernism, I mentioned some months ago to you, he wrote that in response to Pope St. Pius X's publication of Pascendi Dominici Gregis, which condemned modernism. But remember I explained to you that before Pius X wrote Pascendi, there was no book of modernism that you could go, so what do the modernists teach? Well, let's grab this book and we'll research it. Nothing like that existed. Pius X wrote Pascendi. He organized their thoughts. He put it down on paper in an organized, systematic fashion. In response, Father Ernesto published the book on modernism. And if you read Ernesto's work, it's basically a rewriting what Pius X already wants. Listen to what Roncalli said of this Father Ernesto later as a Pope. He said, and this is a direct Pope, if poor Father Ernesto had met with less harsh and less stiff treatment from the Roman Curia and had received more kindness and tenderness, perhaps his entire story would have been different. Unquote. In other words, he is sympathizing with Father Ernesto. And he is saying that he was treated harshly Pius X personally excommunicated this man in 1908. And John XXIII said later, if only he had been treated with kindness, he wouldn't have died outside the church, because he did not reconcile. He died outside the church. So, the bishop he was under was a very bad influence held Pius X in disdain, as this author tells us. And John XXIII had sympathies for the chief modernist in Italy, who was excommunicated by Pius X. After teaching at Bergamo, uh, Roncalli, young Father Roncalli, taught at the, <clears throat> the Lateran University. But here's what happened in the 1920s when he was teaching at the Lateran University. He began teaching the ideas of this man, Rudolf Steiner. Has anyone heard of Rudolf Steiner? <laughs> I didn't think many would hear of Rudolf. Mr. Fonz, of course you <laughs> Rudolf Steiner. Rudolf Steiner was a Austrian monistic philosopher. Uh, monistic philosophy is this doctrine that basically says all reality can be reduced to one substance. This we call monism in philosophy. If that one substance that everything is reduced to is God, 
We call it pantheism. But Rudolf Steiner, because of his monistic philosophy that everything, basically the, 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 the teaching is everything can be reduced to one thing. Everything goes back to one thing, one substance. Rudolf Steiner held the opinion that all religions, like a Catholic, Protestant, Buddhist, Jewish, uh, Islamic, all religions were just basically one. They were one grand religions. One just giant religion here, and all the religions were basically the same. John the 23rd, young Father Roncalli, while teaching at the Lateran University in Rome, began teaching that. This is what the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops website did not tell us. John the 23rd was teaching this. When he was finally caught, as it were, he was labeled with the title Suspect of Modernism. And there was a file on him in the Holy Office in Rome. Suspect of modernism. They pulled him out of the classroom. He was not allowed to teach anymore. That was 1925. What did they do with him? They consecrated him a bishop, and they sent him to Bulgaria. As my good friend Bob Meyer told us, promoveatur ut moveatur. Let him be promoted so that he might be moved. And that's exactly what happened. They got rid of him. Now, we're probably thinking, that's kind of not the way we would get rid of somebody. Right? They promoted him so that they could move him out. And they put him in Bulgaria. Bulgaria at the time was really not a fashionable place to be. They sent him off to Bulgaria. And then they got rid of him even further. They sent him to Istanbul, even further away. I really believe they thought he was just going to be no trouble to them anymore. What damage could you do in Bulgaria? What harm could a Catholic bishop do in Istanbul? Well, the harm was he eventually made his way back became the Apostolic Nuncio to Paris in 1944. Roncalli's models in the priesthood, and here he is with his good friend, Giovanni Montini, Monsignor Montini at the time. His models in the priesthood were those who favored modernism. His statements showed his hatred of anything to do with anti-modernism. One of his greatest friends was this Cardinal Suhard. He was a very close friend of John XXIII, and Cardinal Suhard wrote a letter publicly denouncing 
the defense of the faith as given by Pope St. Pius X. Roncalli shared his ideas. Seward said we have to open the church to the modern world. Roncalli agreed. Roncalli said we have to have dialogue with the atheistic communists in Russia. We can't just cut them off. And he, while he in his heart condemned Pius XII's decree of ipso facto excommunication for anyone who joined the Communist Party. He just never spoke about it. He did not make himself, he didn't draw any attention to himself by the church authorities. I should say, at least after he got back to Paris, he was a little more careful, perhaps, what he did and what he said. While he was in Paris, he became very good friends with this man, Vincent Ariolo. And he insisted that this Vincent Ariolo as you see in this picture here, he's putting the red hat, the cardinal's hat, upon him. He insisted that this man who was the prime minister of France, who was an anti-Catholic and a socialist, and had no good use for the church in any way whatsoever, he insisted that this man, in an unofficial ceremony, put the red hat upon his head. And thus he knelt before him, received the cardinal's hat, and then as the story goes, they embraced Ariel, kissed him on both of his cheeks, and gave him a hug, and began weeping, and told him how much he would miss him in France. Later, when Roncalli was asked about this whole thing with Ariel and this ceremony of an anti-Catholic putting the cardinal's hat upon his head, he, he said of Oriel, well, he's an honest socialist. Roncalli was also openly opposed. Here he could not be silent. He was openly opposed to the idea of Pope Pius XII infallible definition of the dogma of the assumption of our Lady. He said in so many words, if we do this, we will offend our Protestant brethren. This is the man who rose to the ranks of the church despite the fact that he had been on file in the Holy Office since 1925 as a suspect of modernism. And nonetheless, he was seemingly elected Pope on October the 28th, 1958. 
fact, in an audience that he gave to a certain group of seminarians on February the 23rd, 1963, John the 23rd revealed to them that he had for many, many years been closely watched by the Holy Office. And he joked about it. And no wonder he had been closely watched since his attitude towards modernism, Freemasonry, communism, socialism, and Judaism was diametrically opposed to the constant teaching and practice of the Catholic Church. just want to make a few comments so I mentioned Judaism. John the 23rd is a forerunner of the idea that even today is talked about among certain bishops of the new church. This idea that the very fact that the church held, accused the Jews of putting Christ to death was a blasphemous idea. In other words, John the 23rd had a whole different view, he said, of our Jewish brother. Now, if today anybody says that the Jews put death to Christ to death, they are labeled an anti-Semite. Now, we know as Catholics, our Lord died for our sins everywhere. Every sin that had been committed from the beginning to the very last sin that the last man on earth, as it were, will commit, our Lord died for those sins. But he had, he is a forerunner to initiate this whole movement of what we have today, that the Jews are not to be targeted for conversion to the Catholic faith. Did you know that's an official Stance, an official attitude of the new church. Priests are not to target the Jews for conversion. In 2003, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishop, Bishops issued a statement. The Jews have their own means of salvation. Priests are not to try to convert them. Which, of course, goes against what St. Peter the Apostle said in Acts chapter 4. That there is no name given to us under heaven by which we can be saved. Except the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. But John the 23rd is a forerunner of this. One of his first acts as Pope was to remove the word perfidious from the latinical prayers of the, for, on Good Friday that, is, that are prayed for the Jews. Now, if you attend the Good Friday uh, services, uh, ceremonies of the Mass of the Pre-Sanctified, the Veneration of the Cross, there's a series of latinical prayers where you pray for heretics and schismatics, they pray for Jews, they pray for the conversion of sinners. 
In that prayer, they labeled the Jews perfidious. He had that word taken out. He also changed Pius XI's act of consecration of the human race to the sacred heart. We pray on First Fridays. That we pray every year officially after every Mass on the Feast of Christ the King. John the 23rd removed that little section towards the end of the act of consecration in reference to the Jews, once thy chosen people. He had that taken out. He said it was offensive to the Jews. In the practical order, he would not hear of converting them to Christ and Christianity. And again, today, You never hear them in the new church talk about converting the Jews. If they were to even suggest it, they would be labeled anti-Semitic. Furthermore, Ron Colley was among the first to openly promote the false ecumenism that is so rampant today in regard to Protestantism, and the Orthodox churches of the East. That is the schismatic Orthodox churches of the East. Make no mistake about it, Angelo Roncalli was not just a liberal prelate in the church. He was a modernist. He was the man that the modernists, the enemies of the church, sought to have on the throne of people. And how? Only God knows. He was elected October the 28th, 1958. When asked by the dean of the Sacred College, Cardinal Eugene Tisserand, by what name he desired to be known, he said simply, I will be called John. And almost immediately, almost immediately upon ascending the throne of Peter, he went into the offices of the Holy Office in the Vatican. And he demanded to see the file that they had on him. And when it was presented to him, because they can't tell the Pope, no, you can't see this. When it was presented to him, it is said that he wrote in bold letters across the file, I am not a modernist. It is also said that shortly after his election, a certain cardinal asked him how he was going to fill the large shoes of the recently deceased Pius XII. That is to say, Pius XII was such a good pope in his rule of the church, wise and prudent, How will you, John the 23rd, follow him? 
This is John the 23rd's reply to that question. He said, well, I think of what Pius XII would do, and then I will do just the opposite. So hence, he was elected October the 28th, 1958. On October 4th, 1903, Pope Pius X, and I'm just going back here briefly to make a point here. Pope Pius XII, Pius X, I'm sorry, October 4th, 1903, he issued his first encyclical letter. I didn't talk about this before. Pius X's first encyclical letter was titled A Supreme. And in this letter, he informed the bishops of the world of his program as Pope to restore all things in Christ. You've all heard that. Pius X's program was to restore all things in Christ. He wrote these words in the encyclical. Let me just read. This is a quote from St. Pius X. Since, however, it has been pleasing to the divine will to raise our lowliness to such sublimity of power, we take courage in him who strengthens us and setting ourselves to work, relying on the power of God. We proclaim that we have no other program in the supreme pontificate but that of restoring all things in Christ so that Christ may be all and in all. Those are the words of Pope St. Pius X, his first encyclical, laying out to all the bishops of the world, the clergy and the faithful, here is what I'm going to do. Everything is about Christ. And St. Pius X did this in many wonderful ways, of course, safeguarding the deposit of faith and striking down modernism. Read that to you and gave you the contrast of what is about to happen or what happened in the pontificate of John the 23rd. As I mentioned in the opening reading I gave you from the book The Rhine Flows Into the Tiber, three months after his election, John the 23rd, on January the 25th, 1959, coming up on 60 years now, John the 23rd celebrated a Mass for church unity in the Benedictine Monastery at the Basilica of St. Paul's outside the walls. January 25th is the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul. He's at the Basilica of St. Paul in Rome, celebrating this Mass. Here is how Xavier Wren describes the scene in his book, Letters from Vatican City. I think I'm behind that. 
I have to introduce this man to you because I take a lot from his book. His name was Father Francis X. Murphy. He was a redemptorist priest. He was a professor of theology. He lived from 1914 to 2002. But he had a pseudo name for his book. He called himself Xavier Wren. And he wrote this book called Letters from Vatican City. He was present at Vatican II. And he wrote the story of Vatican II and all the proceedings. He states that he attended the council as a journalist to give his reader a story of Vatican II. But throughout his entire book, as I have gone through it, he gives his reader the most favorable impression of the council, even as he goes after men like Cardinal Ottaviani, old-fashioned and outdated, and how they had to be pushed aside by good Pope John. But in his book, Letters from Vatican City, he wrote about this meeting at the Benedictine Monastery at St. Paul's Cathedral in Rome that took place after Mass between John the 23rd and 18 Cardinals. I'm just going to read to you now what he wrote. The Pope gathered around him the 18 Cardinals present for the occasion and talk to them intimately of the affairs of the church. He first told them of his intention to hold a local synod for the Diocese of Rome, to renew the Christian way of life in the center of Christendom. Then turning his attention to world conditions, John the 23rd painted a brief and vivid picture of the good and evil influences struggling to control the contemporary world. He pointed to the sanctity and the moral confusion that exists side by side throughout the world in villages, cities, and nations everywhere and the continual temptations facing modern man to make an idol of scientific progress. And then he said this to the cardinals, and they're all listening very attentively to what he's saying, wondering, in other words, what is the point here? And then John the 23rd said this, in order to proclaim the truth and to reanimate the faith of Christians and thereby to contribute to the well-being of the world here and now, I have decided to call a council for the universal church. For the first time, he publicly states there's going to be a council. And the word 
that was to be the summary of the program that he revealed to this select group of cardinals that he gathered around him. The one word that was going to sum up his pontificate as Pius X's pontificate was summed up by the words, restore all things in Christ, John the Twenty-Third would have a slogan, as it were, too. And he revealed on January 25th, 1959, the word adjournamento. That was his program. Adjournamento is an Italian word which in English means a bringing up to date. An opening, he told the cardinals, of the windows of the church. He said we have, he told them that day, we have, a statement he repeated on more than one occasion, we have to open up the windows of the church, we have to let the fresh air of the world in. He also told them, right? He tells them there's going to be a council. He tells them his program, a giornamento. He also told them his pontificate, unlike previous pontificates, is not going to be characterized by excommunications and suspensions and punishments and removal from priests and theologians. He says, my pontificate is going to be characterized by kindness and mercy. There will be no more condemnations of priests. There will be no excommunications. After John the Twenty-Third had announced all this to the cardinals, According to Xavier Wren, he then turned to the cardinals and then asked them, I would like to have your opinion on this. Xavier Wren writes, the cardinals to a man sat mute before him. Not a word of response was uttered. John the 23rd, Xavier Wren goes on to tell us, later expressed his disappointment in all 18 of those cardinals at their lack of enthusiasm for the council, for adjournamental, and for his program of kindness and mercy. Furthermore, it was in January of 1961, before Vatican II convened, that John XXIII called before him four or five of the oldest cardinals. And he asked each one of them to relinquish their position as Head of these particular congregations. Remember I told you 
Pope has in Rome, there are 15 what we call Roman congregations that govern various things. There's the Sacred Congregation of Rites. There's the Congregation for Religious. There's the Congregation for the Eastern Churches. There's 15 congregations through which the Pope governs the whole church. He asked four or five of them to relinquish their positions as heads of these congregations. Xavier Rins says that after the interview, the Pope was seen standing in amazement, shaking his head and crying out loud, they refused. They all refused. Never in my life did I think anyone would refuse the Pope. But they refused him because these four or five cardinals knew what he was up to. You have to understand, and we're not going to go too far into this now, I'm going to stop here momentarily. One of the greatest obstacles in Rome to the modernists was the Roman Curia. The Roman Curia simply means in English the Roman court. It is the central government of the church that assists the Pope in ruling the universal church. As I mentioned, the 15 congregations. The Roman Curia is made up of these congregations. It is made up of tribunals. It is made up of courts, commissions, offices. And they're all headed by a cardinal. And John the 23rd, as a modernist, despised the Roman Curia long before he became John the 23rd. He despised the Roman Curia because they were the wall stopping modernism in Rome. In fact, shortly after his election, he was asked by certain members of the press how many people work in the Roman Curia. And he thought for a moment, then he replied with a smile, oh, about half. <laughs> Furthermore, since the time of Pius IX, especially Pope St. Pius X and his condemnation of modernism and the anti-modernism network, the Roman Curia was heavily criticized by the world press. And with each passing year in the 20th century, there was pressure from bishops of Germany, Holland, and France that the Roman Curia had to be restructured or removed. And there were some who were calling for a total abolition of the Roman Curia. They were constantly watching, especially the Holy Office. Constantly watching. Bishops around the world were the head of their diocese. But you know what? It's interesting to note 
that even in the early 20th century, if Rome, if in Rome a man was consecrated a bishop and then sent to a diocese, the bishop, the bishops in that country would be offended in certain parts of the world. They would get upset that Rome was pushing this on them. A good friend, priest friend, told me many years ago concerning Cardinal Spellman. Cardinal Spellman had studied at the North American College in Rome. Cardinal Spellman became good friends with Pope Pius XII. One day, as this priest told me, he was a priest from the Archdiocese of New York, as he told me, one day, a young Monsignor, or I'm sorry, a young Bishop, Eugenio Pacelli, the future Pius XII, was walking along this certain street in Rome, and he saw a young American priest from the North American College teaching these Italian children how to box. And he was so impressed, he went over to meet this young American priest. They became good friends. That was Father Francis Stone. They stayed in touch. Pius XII eventually consecrated Cardinal, uh, Cardinal Stallman a bishop. They then sent him to the Diocese of Boston, which was his home diocese, to be an auxiliary bishop. And William Cardinal O'Connell did not take kindly to it that this bishop was just sent to him without his saying it. So there was a friction there. And I don't mean to paint, I'm, I'm, try, I'm not trying to paint this picture that there was terrible problems like that. It was just, people were very sensitive. They wanted to pick their own man to be an auxiliary bishop. So they said, uh, Bishop Spellman there, and basically he was set aside. A year later, Patrick Cardinal Hayes of New York dies. He dies a couple months after Pius XII was elected Pope. And usually the apostolic delegate in the country sends names over who can be the next bishop of New York. He consults with you know, they thought it was going to be a priest in New York who was going to be raised. Pius XII sends back words, the Bishop of New York is going to be Bishop Stallman of Boston. And he was sent to New York. So there was already, you know, they just, it's not that they were rebelling, but they wanted to put their own man in. This is just a small example that the power of the Roman Curia power of the Roman Curia was very great and it kept, the Roman Curia kept everybody in line. It kept everybody in line and that is why John the 23rd despised it. Vatican II was going to be the means by which he would break the power and the hold of the Roman Curia. 